This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. I caught you streaking in your Birkenstock, a scary thought in the 2Ks. It's not too late, it's a toothpaste, got enveloped in your sticker shock. I gotta tell ya, it's a barrage, it's a barrage, it's a mirage. We are the tigers, we need Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore. I'm coming down with a cold, so I'll apologize in advance for the sounds that I make. Uh, but in a much healthier state of mind, I am joined from St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, by Michael Farmer. Michael, how are you doing this morning? Well, I don't know. It's, I'd call my state of mind healthy, but state of lungs certainly are healthier. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) Uh, Of course, the gaping absence that you hear is the new papa, David Grubbs. Uh, Because of my spectacularly bad timing on the day that his daughter was born. (laughs) You all knew about that, actually, before I did. (laughs) It's true. And and real quick, Michael, I just got to rehearse this timeline. I had this thought, okay, you know... A lot of people are joining the Christian Humanist Podcast Facebook page, which is great. Keep joining. We love having new people there. They've certainly heard us mention the fact that, you know, Baby Grubs is on the way. So I just put what I thought was an innocent message, you know, Baby Grubs is on the way. Check back here and we'll give you updates, you know, which I took to mean, you know, on the day that it happens, we'll post an update here. Well, uh immediately a whole mess of people from the University of Georgia say, oh my gosh, is the baby born? Is the baby born? (laughs) And then I went back to my office from, you know, where I'd been working in the printer room because it was montage season. uh, And I noticed that my phone on my desk had a new text message, uh, which read, we're on our way to the hospital. The baby's (laughs) on the way. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, if this were a TV script, I would say that it was contrived. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, so and, anyway. I, and I tried to make fun of you about it by telling you to reveal the gender of the baby that had not yet Well, I know, and by, and by that time, Michael, I was just feeling like crap because I <laughs> I had just scooped David on the birth of his own child. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, jeez, I really didn't mean to do that. I, <laughs> it's a girl, though. Uh, what now? It's a girl, though. Yes, yes, Arden Lee Grubbs has been born, so Papa Grubbs uh, is obviously... Loving his daughter right now rather than recording a podcast, which is where he should be. But he will be back next week. Yes, yes. But we're going to soldier on, Michael. <laughs> uh, on the blog, I've, I've once again been remiss with the Bible posts. I apologize for that. Uh, these last few weeks of the semester, as we mentioned, every semester are just a bear. Uh, so the students they will... think they have it bad, but they have no idea. No, no. And yeah, that's another episode for another day. You know, I'm coming in on Saturday and Sunday to do a review session for two classes. Do you think it will affect my teaching evaluations? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't care about his students. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I'm not looking forward to seeing my evaluation this semester, but it's for reasons I won't talk about while we're recording. 
At any rate, I, I did post something uh, just yesterday, so it'll be several days in the past for listeners, uh, about uh, seminary education. I had a conversation with some old seminary friends of mine on Facebook. I asked for their permission to move it over to the blog, and so I did so. Uh, if you are interested at all in seminary education or Christian education more broadly, uh, please jump in, comment on that. Uh Michael, do we have feedback this week? We do. We got two uh, messages from a guy named Glenn. You have one and I have the other. So why don't you go first because yours is first. All right, I will do that. So the first email, uh, which he sent after our... Which episode was that, Michael? Was that our uh, Outrageous Idea of Christian Scholarship episode? I think it was. Yes, I think so. Uh, Glenn says... Uh, You discussed the leftward leanings of your audience in the most recent podcast. I, therefore, send you greetings from the right. Uh, And then, I mean, in what I take to be a more autobiographical note, uh, I am rightfully rightward on both theology and politics. Uh, Being crippled and penniless, I am also fearlessly free of guilt. I am always bemused with those to, to, uh, to my left, I am always bemused when those to my left try to play the guilt card on me. My apologies, Glenn. I just bungled your email. Uh, But so, you know, uh, we were having that discussion, Michael, in that episode about how when we post things that are of a controversial nature on the blog, we generally get more comments from the left than from the right. Uh, Glenn rightfully notes that, in fact, in his case, he is to the right of us. What's his other email say? He says, it's been a long time since my brief studies in the Russian language. If you're worried about the correct pronunciation, you should probably worry more about your mangling of the R in the last name of the brothers in Dostoevsky's novel. He says we should trill them. I can't trill. Can you trill? Well, like Karamatov? Yeah, I can't do that. (laughs) And he suspects that the T sound shouldn't be in the Z. Even worse, he says, is your pronunciation of the Y in, in the youngest brother's name. He says... The name should not be Alyosha. I don't know if it's supposed to be Alyosha or what. He doesn't put a correct pronunciation guide. All right, all right. Then he says, my personal position is that you're neither reading nor speaking Russian, so you shouldn't care what the Russian pronunciation is. If you're speaking American English, you're the expert. Don't worry about what some foreigner, who probably hates you anyway, thinks. Sorry, comrade. My impersonal position, he says, and here, here, here's the part of the email that I don't, uh, I don't know how to read the tone of. Mm-hmm. My impersonal position is that I don't care what you think either. I'll spare you a long misanthropic rant, probably because I'm tired. I have no idea what that means. Wow. I don't know if it's a shot at us, or I, I, I don't know. Man, I don't know either. Um, but thanks for listening, Glenn. Uh, we love you anyway. <laughs> Um, one other thing, Michael, before we get onto the episode proper, I should note that in the most recent theology nerd throwdown on homebrewed Christianity, uh, friend of the show, although not in agreement with us on a whole mess of important questions, Trip Fuller, uh, did give a nod to the Christian Humanist podcast and said that one of the things that we do well is that we take seriously things that happened before our own generation. Yeah, he said that context. even though you've been making fun of him for weeks now. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. He, he <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's trying to bless those who persecute. So, Trip, you're you're more Jesusy than I am. I'll grant that. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as always, you know, I, the views expressed on homebrew Christianity definitely come from a different school of thought than 
even the fairly diverse views of the Christian Humanist podcast hosts. It's still a fine podcast. I still listen to it. Uh, and, you know, I enjoy at least every other episode. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Trip. Okay. Man, I see the end of the semester. I've got a cold. I'm just getting mean, Michael. He's biting the hand that feeds him. Yeah, I really am. I really am. At least they take uh, note of us, unlike the uh, Christ the Sinner guys, who I'm fairly certain don't know we exist. Yeah, that's entirely possible. And they're the ones we is... really lay into. Oh, I don't know. I think I abuse both the conservative Calvinists and the liberal process folks a fair bit. I wouldn't want to make any statistical claims. <laughs> if we have any statisticians out there who have a report to give us, by all means, send it our way. <laughs> it could be somebody's do- doctoral dissertation. Oh, somebody's, heaven help us. Somebody's sad, pathetic doctoral <laughs> yeah. dissertation. I would, I would lobby against that person becoming academic dean, let me put it that way. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Well, at any rate, Michael, uh, we haven't done a, pod- a podcast on politics this semester, so we're going to fix that this week. Uh, David Brooks is one of those cats who, week to week, I either love him or I think, what in the world is going through his head? Uh, he is a cultural conservative, a traditionalist. I love him for that. I've got one of his essays taped to the door of my office at Emmanuel College because it's such a good manifesto for old books and their role in con- contemporary politics. Uh, on the other hand, when he starts to play apologist for the GOP, I scratch my head and say, what in the world could he be thinking? He's so smart other days. Um, and by the way, folks, in case you're wondering, I say the same about smart people who are apologists for Barack Obama. So, Which uh, you David know. Brooks is also, incidentally. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So I, <laughs> what are you going to do, Right. Right. Anyway, uh, one of his more table-setting essays, this is really something that sort of catapulted him into national prominence, although obviously he'd he'd been around before then, uh, were actually two artifacts. One was a book called Bobos in Paradise, which I read and enjoyed. The other is an essay for the Atlantic Monthly, uh, which is now just the Atlantic, uh, entitled One Nation Slightly Divisible. There'll be a link to it on the show notes. Uh, But... Michael, because we still don't have David, so we still don't have someone to do historical context for us, I'm going to have to ask you to do it. Uh, When David Brooks uh, published this essay, it was December 2001, uh, which was an interesting moment in recent American politics. What sorts of things had happened in the year and some change before that that he mentions and that you want to mention that seemed to motivate the essay and where do the de- designations Red America and Blue America come from? Well, an awful lot had happened in the in the few years just before he published this essay, right? I mean, the most obvious thing is September 11th, but we'll come back to that. Uh, before that, you had the Bush-Gore election in 2000, which is one of the ugliest... I don't, I don't want to say most partisan, because all elections are partisan, but it was one of the right. ugliest, most <laughs> contested elections that certainly that I, I can remember, but I, I, I'm sure if you if you went through, it would turn out to be one of the ugliest ones in American history. And so um, people became very, very aware of what their differences were, and the, the bitterness really started to rise up. At the same time, you get the rise of Fox News, which starts in 1996, but does not become a major player until the late 90s, early 2000s. And Fox News 
Uh, I'm going to reveal my own partisan background here. Is is I think probably the the first blatantly partisan news network to be followed very quickly by uh, MSNBC. Mm-hmm. So um, you you now have a phenomenon, but both with the 24-hour news cycle, which wasn't as new, but w- with the partisan 24-hour news cycle, where people can overindulge on news and not have to listen to anyone who disagrees with them. Now, September 11 briefly brings people together. Um, of course, everybody on the left, or most people on the left, hated Bush um, for the first nine months of his term. After September 11, his approval ratings go way up. Uh, for a while, it looks like the country is, everybody's going to get along just fine. You know, we're all going to band together, and, you know, it ends up not really being the case for very long. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have a sense of how long it was. Less than a month, I'd say, wouldn't you? Oh, I mean, it depends on what sector of American life you're talking about. I mean, you know, in the blogosphere, I mean, the happy, happy, joy, joy feelings lasted for all of four days. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you know. I didn't have a TV in, in 2001. Yeah, and see, I did. And, I mean, the the cable news networks, I mean, were flag-waving for a good solid three or four months, as I remember it. Okay. Anyway, it didn't last as long as uh, people wanted it to. And, and yeah. so before too long, it got right back into the same old partisan bickering. Mm-hmm. As for the terms red state and blue state, I could not believe this. Do you, do you know where they come from? I don't know if you know when you ask. Oh, I, I didn't know that there was a singular place. There I, is a singular I... place. Uh, okay, the, go ahead. Go ahead. The, the televised news coverage of elections had been using colors to represent the parties for, you know, as long as there were color TVs, right? Sure, sure. But the first time it got codified into red state, blue state was in 2000 by the Today Show of all places. Huh, I'll be. That is funny, that is funny. Those terms would have been outrageously recent. As you pointed out in in uh, our preparation for this show, red Uh used to mean communist. I mean, so so the idea that the the Democrats would be, um, the the Republicans would be red was... uh, would have been ridiculous 50 years ago. But now, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, like I said, it got codified in the 2000 election by the Today Show. Not even by one of the 24-hour news networks. And then everybody decided to go go with that, I guess. You know, it makes sense. If everybody's using the same colors, it's easier to talk about. Right, um, right. But you wonder how much the colors are kind of the tail wagging the dog. It, uh-huh. it, it simplifies things to such an extent that, you know, we're, we're tempted to view it reduction reductionistically. We're, yeah. we're tempted to view it through the lens of reductionism. Mm-hmm. We're tempted to reduce it. We're tempted to reduce it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm grading. Uh, I'm grading papers. So. I'm, yeah, uh, yeah, I can tell. I can tell. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is, I mean, I I didn't even recognize that in 2000 because I had remembered the first televised election that I was aware of back in 1984. Uh, and, you know, doing a little bit of background reading, you know, I came to realize that this was entirely coincidental that that year, uh, CBS, which is the network that my parents watched, uh, was using blue to signify the one state that Walter Mondale won and red to indicate the, you know, everyone else that Ronald Reagan won. So they, uh, they used the red and blue scheme then, but, but it yeah, yeah, yeah. It, but, everybody so, I mean, when it. when it came around in 2000 and everyone started talking about red state and blue state, you know, my mind just sort of associated and assumed that it had always been so. But you're right. I mean, you know, doing some background reading, it really doesn't become a 
a topic in the Aristotelian sense until 2000, which, which is more than a little bit mind-blowing. 2000 <laughs> is the first – I mean, I was aware of the 96 election and kind of vaguely aware of the 92 election, but 2000 uh-huh. was the first one I actually paid attention to. So it's, oh, okay. it's, it's strange for me to even think that there was a time when it was – to think that it's that recent kind of blows my mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway – Uh, Yeah, I mean, so we're talking about, you know, categories that really had been codified two years earlier at the most when David Brooks is writing this essay. Right. Uh, So, I mean, he is definitely inventing this mythology of, and I mean mythology in the sort of C.S. Lewis Tolkien sense, uh, this mythology of red America and blue America uh, far more than he is sort of reporting on it. So, I mean, you know, when you think of book, of articles like this, books like Thomas Frank's uh, What's Wrong with Kansas, I mean, they are, again, I mean, if you think about it in rhetorical terms, they are really inventing this idea of red America and blue America. So, in this essay, Michael, I mean, Brooks entertains a few theories governing the divide that he sees among Americans. Uh, because at that time, you know, people were talking about the polarization of America and so on and so forth and how that had been cured for a moment by September 11. Uh, and one of the theories that he had dismisses pretty much out of hand is the theory that Americans are divided among haves and have-nots. Uh, why does he dismiss that theory and what others does he find more compelling well, he tells the story of Gore's uh, campaign in 2000, and he says that Gore ran, you know, well, you know, Gore ran about 15 campaigns during that election. He changed his personality every three or four weeks. But one of the ones he tried uh, was he tried to run as a friend of the common man against the corporate, you know, mustache-twirling fat cats. Um, and, and he tried that specifically in Franklin County, Pennsylvania, which is the red, the red county that Brooks visits in the piece. But what happens is, when he actually goes into Franklin County, he sees that people don't respond well to what, to, to the vibes Gore is putting off, right? They, they, don't, they don't see themselves as being al- uh, aligned against the corporate fat cats, because there's much less income inequality in Franklin County than in Montgomery County. Uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, I think, it's where Bethesda is. And yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's Brooks's home county, and it's his blue county. Right. So there are there are certainly fewer millionaires in Franklin County, but everybody is much closer to the same level. So you're not being pushed against people who have way more than you. He says that if you live in Franklin County, there's likely nothing on sale in the county that you can't afford. Whereas unless you're outrageously rich in Montgomery County, you are constantly bombarded with things you can't afford. So they're not feeling the pressure of the haves and have-nots in Franklin County, even though perhaps um, the average income is lower. The average income is lower, but the uh, the poles aren't as far apart. Right, right. So uh, red staters don't see themselves as having less than other people, according to Brooks. Now, I'm not sure this really holds water. Uh, having lived in red counties, I, I, I don't I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it may be more closer to the point to say that people in, in red America, I, I really hate that term, um, <laughs> tend to see themselves as potential rich people. Yeah. But it is certainly true that income inequality is higher in cities. There are richer people and poorer people in cities. That that is Oh, sure, sure. That is, yeah. That's undeniable. So that that is actually one of the divisions he prefers, which is cities versus rural. He says cities mm-hmm. tend to be blue, rural areas tend to be red. I think that is undeniable because if you look at 
if you look at county by county maps of even red states like Georgia, the the counties that are going to be uh, that are going to be blue are the counties that contain cities like Athens and Atlanta. I don't know if Savannah's blue or not, but certainly Athens and Atlanta are. Yeah, uh, and I know we'll come to that in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> suburbs, he says, look the same all over the country. So a suburb in a red state is going to vote pretty much the same way as a suburb in a blue state. And the right. su- uh, suburbs are places where people have the same general amount of income. Um, mm-hmm. Another divide he, he uh, actually affirms is the religious divide. Uh, there, there are more traditional Christians and Jews in red states, and there's much more secular and new agey types in the blue states. And he, he talks about, if you remember, um, one of the recent political scandals was Gary Conduit and Chandra Levy, the uh, intern who disappeared and they thought Conduit killed her. Yeah, yeah, and that story was seemingly invulnerable until 9-11. Yeah, nobody was happier for 9-11 than Gary Condiment. But um, Yeah, there you go. Anyway, they he, he interviews Chandra Levy's mother, and Chandra Levy's mother's like, yeah, I'm a Jew and a Christian, and I believe in the stars, and I believe in all this other stuff. And he said that that, that is an attitude you're not going to find as much in the red states. Now, I don't think I – th- I think his being an outsider to Christian theology – makes him over, <laughs> overlook some things because all the people he interviews, all, all the supposedly conservative Christians he interviews in the, in Franklin County are uh, mainliners. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. like his main pastor went to union theological seminary, which I have nothing against union. Um, I, I, I would love to uh, go there myself if I were going to seminary, but that is not right. a conservative seminary. No, it's a, it's one of the more liberal seminaries I'm aware of. Right. So I think, I think his being an outsider to Christian theology, he's, he's Jewish, is he not? He's, he's practicing. He is. He is. Um, his being an outsider to Christian theology, I think makes him oversimplify the religious views of both the, the, uh, red and the blue states. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing he he said that I thought was interesting is the red states tend towards humility. Uh, people in the red states were much more likely to answer the question, are you special, with no. Mm-hmm. Um, and the blue states tend towards self-aggrandizement. Uh-huh. Which uh, I, I don't have a sociological reading of that, but I thought it was interesting. Um, I, I don't trust statistics that much, but his statistics <laughs> back up his point there. Oh, I'm yeah, sure. yeah. Also, find statistics that didn't although some of the statistics he cites in that article, I mean, you know, it's like he he tries to make a lot of hay out of the difference between forty seven percent and fifty one percent. But then later <laughs> it'll be fifty seven to fifty three, and he'll say that's not that big of a difference. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, he he plays with statistics as everybody who uses statistics does, or as ninety nine percent of people who use statistics do. <laughs> It's it's actually only eighty seven point four percent. Excuse me, I I hadn't looked. Oh no no, that's how many people make up statistics on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, well, anyway, yeah, yeah. I mean that that ego point. uh, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, does your own experience? I mean, you've probably spent more time in blue America than I have. Uh, just because, I mean, I could count on one hand the number of times I've visited the big cities of America. I mean, do you see any evidence for or against that division that he makes? I, I don't know. I, the The only big city I've ever lived in is Omaha, and Omaha is red. I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah. Not as red as the rest of Nebraska, which I believe is the reddest state. But uh, it, it, Omaha is hardly a liberal city. So I, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't really have a sense of that. My gut is to say no because I am Calvinist enough to believe that everybody pretty much thinks they're the bee's knees. 
but but uh, I, I can't back that up with any sort of personal anecdote. Oh, all right, all right. Well, I mean, I just mean I, I haven't even visited the big cities that much. Oh, so I, see. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been to, I've been to Chicago a handful of times, but I've never been in New York, never been in L.A., so. I mean, it's I guess, you know, it's true that, that people in the big cities I, I've gone to are less friendly, but I don't know if that's the same thing as being self-aggrandizing. It's, it's kind of a... Uh, in the city, you you learn not to uh, not to greet anybody too warmly, lest they ask you for something. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, I I don't I don't I don't have a sense of that. I don't, I don't know if if the thing about humility is true. I I suspect that their self-aggrandizement just manifests itself in different ways. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Yeah, and I mean, I I think you broke down his you know schemata of division nicely. You know, I mean, I what's interesting is that, you know, the failure of Al Gore's campaign, he mentions, but he doesn't really note that that's exactly how Clinton won against George H.W. Bush and Bob Dole. Well, and the, and the, you know, I mean, you know, famously his slogan. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. It's a difference between who Clinton was and who Gore was, right? Clinton was legitimately from white trash. Yeah. He, he legitimately was one of them. But Gore, I mean, his dad was a senator for crying out loud. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the idea that Al Gore would be able to play the common man is just ludicrous. Right. Well, Bush, what's Bush even more it. ludicrous is that George W. Bush managed to carry it off. Yeah, that's true. I, I didn't even think. I mean, he I mean, you know, I mean, he, he's fr- he's from a blue blood Massachusetts waspy family, as waspy as waspy gets. His puts, dad was president, and yet he was playing himself off as the, you know cowboy from texas right so never mind what i just said (laughs) well no no no. you're right it is ludicrous that gore would try that and fail it's even more ludicrous that bush tried it and succeeded (laughs) right right (laughs) it's one of those things where okay if if that worked then that over there should have worked too i can't figure this out (laughs) well i mean and the truth the truth is uh whatever you think about george w bush he is far more charming than al gore far far more um affable far less stiff and rigid yeah yeah i mean, I mean the, the party line is that he he won in 2000 because people would rather have a beer with him i don't know if that's why he won but i think it's certainly true people would rather have a beer with right him. well i mean that's what david brooks says yeah yeah so i mean you know that's absolutely you know one of the upshots of this article is that you know uh bush won so handily in red america uh because he he managed to get them to identify with him in a way that gore didn't so yeah, I mean, I you know, it's it's fascinating stuff, but I mean, Clinton's slogan all through his campaign was, you know, there are people who are working hard, playing the rules, playing by the rules and getting the shaft. And I mean, that sort of, you know, quasi populist tone carried the day over George H.W. Bush, who who really couldn't play the common man if he uh if he had a million dollars to do it, which he did. <laughs> <laughs> Well played, well played. I mean, he, so didn't anyway, even, he didn't even try to, to be fair, right? I mean, I, I don't remember that election. Oh, no, and, it, and in fact, I mean, that was one of the things that I remember most about the 92 campaign was that, you know, Bill Clinton was, you know, playing saxophone on Arsenio Hall and he was doing interviews on MTV and, you know, doing all of these pop culture things. And when George H.W. Bush was asked about it, he said, you know, this office has a certain dignity that I have to respect. Is he and, you suggesting know, that Arsenio Hall is not dignified? 
<laughs> uh, that does seem to be the implication. <laughs> but of course, I mean, you know, more recent presidential candidates have learned that lesson, right? I mean, now there is no venue which a presidential candidate will stay away from, well, right? Obama was on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon this week. Oh, I he... know. I've, I've seen that clip floating around YouTube, or not YouTube, but Facebook. What, what is it called? Uh, is it? I, I don't Slow watch, Jam the News. Slow Jam the News. I don't watch Jimmy Fallon. I don't either, but I saw the YouTube clip right. on Facebook. <laughs> right. So, I mean, so. yeah. And, and, you know, when I see things like that, I think maybe George H.W. Bush had a point. Yeah, there's something to it. Although, I do have to tip my hat to the Roots, who have gone from uh, the Dave Chappelle show to Yo Gabba Gabba, now to doing gigs with President Obama. Nothing wrong with the Roots. Nothing wrong with Jimmy Fallon. No, no, I love the Roots. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, there, there are things I would prefer my president not do while, while he's president. But, but he did this during the first year of his campaign, too, as you'll recall. Or not, the, not his campaign, the first year of his presidency, as you'll recall. He went around on this press tour to try to sell the American public on his policies. But yeah. the, the, the press tour was things like The Tonight Show and, uh, you know, the late night shows. And there's something, I don't know, vaguely unsavory about that to me. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. All right, Michael, to move on with the discussion, as with the outrageous idea of Christian scholarship, this is a document from more than a decade ago describing what were current realities in political life. Uh, to what extent and in what ways have things shifted since Brooks wrote this, and what things have remained insightful about the essay? Well, for one thing, NASCAR has spread to the blue states. He, he points to NASCAR as a big example of, of the difference between the red states and the blue states. But I think one of the biggest NASCAR, uh, what do they call them, tracks? I don't watch NASCAR. Um, one of the biggest <laughs> go, ones. Go is ahead it, and finish your question, Blue Blood, and I'll tell you. Is it, it's one, <laughs> one of the big ones is in New York. I mean, so. Yeah, yeah. Cer certainly, certainly, some of the pop culture has kind of shifted lines. I yeah, and the, the old yeah, school NASCAR people hate this, by the way, that now more and more races are moving to the north and to the west when it used to be very much a Carolinas and Tennessee sort of sport. A hillbilly sport, yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, he's very blithe about the differences between the red states and the blue states in this article. He, he does not seem to think it is cause for alarm. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I don't know if he would still affirm that because one thing I think that has changed is that the politicians have picked up on the cultural divide and are playing it and so um, the ugliness last year in Congress about the uh, raising the debt ceiling for example I think yeah, is, yeah. is this having moved into the actual political arena instead of just the voters and uh, that is not good you know, I know, I know that is not the first time we have had a uh, government standstill because of partisanship. I, I understand that the same thing happened during Clinton's first term, but it's mm -hmm. still not a good thing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and I, t I can't imagine that Brooks is as blithe about the differences between quote-unquote red and blue America now as he was in 2001. Right, I can certainly see that. Uh, yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I read this article with great interest back in 2001, and then I read some responses to it from, among other people, Thomas Frank uh, and Michael Moore and, you know, folks from the Democrat side of things. Uh, I, I can't bring myself to call them the left. I'd, <laughs> like, if you're going to be part of the left, you need to be a Marxist. All right. But uh, are you suggesting you know, that Michael Moore's $8 million apartment in Manhattan makes him not 
Genuinely <laughs> leftist. Oh, I yeah. I'm, I'm going to walk away from that. Um, but at any rate, uh, you know that is that's a frequent complaint that they were making about it. That you know, in fact, if you go to certain areas of Kansas City or other mid Indianapolis to you know go to my home state or other big cities in the Midwest and the South, uh, you're going to find Republicans who live the same sort of high spending lifestyle that Brooks describes as blue state habits, right? Right. Uh, and I mean, that's, you know, largely what Thomas Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas, details, you know, is, you know, he goes to the big cities in Kansas and, you know, finds this class of people who live basically identically to David Brooks's conception of suburban D.C. red state or blue staters, pardon me, uh, even though they are very obviously, you know, Republican Party activists. Uh, so, you know, I, I do agree with you, Michael, that, you know, this whole uh, reductionist move, as you labeled it, uh, to say that there are certain states with certain lifestyles. Uh, and, you know, interestingly enough, it sort of gets played out in the recent uh, young adult novel and movie Hunger Games, right? Because you have these districts uh, that, you know, each one has its own sort of lifestyle as if, you know, human communities were that monolithic, right. you know. What now? I said right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but they, I mean, they, that's uh, that's a children's, that's a, a young adult science fiction novel. That's not political analysis. So that's not a knock on the Hunger Games. It just seems like it's playing off that same idea. The, the other thing I think he fails to notice, or at least fails to mention, is that the people in Franklin County are not the people driving the Republican Party. They may be people the Republican Party can depend on to vote for them, but the people driving the Republican Party are people like the Koch brothers, you, you know, uh, multimillionaires who are funding right, right. these campaigns. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, the people in uh, in Franklin County may not be uh, may not be resentful, but you know, the 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 Koch brothers and the uh, the other, for lack of a better word, corporate fat cats are a completely different story. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, again, you know, to go back to Thomas Frank and I, I'm, no, I'm kind of, I, I am sorry that David's not here because I think he would challenge me on the Thomas Frank thing because I think I'm a little bit too sympathetic with Thomas Frank. Uh, and I know David is very, very suspicious of him. So David, come back, please. You, Especially since you, David is in Kansas now. He's part of the problem. Yeah, there you go. There you go. But, you know, his thesis is that, you know, in both parties, what you have is, you know, a small group of multimillionaires. You know, it tends to be, you know, people in the energy industry and in international commerce on the Republican Party. It tends to be uh, bankers and such in the Democratic Party. Right. Uh, and, but then, I mean. Hollywood folks. Yeah, and Hollywood folks, thank you, thank you. Uh, but then you've got the people who are reliably uh, irritable. So, you know, on the right, you've got the anti-abortion people. Anytime you need them to, you can get them out on the street rallying and screaming. On the left, it's the pro-abortion people. Right. Uh, anytime you want them to, you can get them out waving their Roe v. Wade signs. Uh, so you get your political theater on both sides. And then, I mean, the contest really is for which side can make the other seem more alien, 
you know, and, you know, if you can win that rhetorical contest to make your average, you know, Franklin County or Clark County, Georgia or Hendricks County, Indiana, people think that you are less dangerous than the other people, then you're going to win the election. And I mean, to me, I mean, that makes some sense, but I also know that I tend to have a sort of jaded quasi-Marxist view about American politics. So again, you know, this is where, you know, I would need David to come in and correct me and say, no, 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 this isn't about class struggle. This is about people reminding you of your beloved aunt. <laughs> well, that's probably true too. I mean, but, but I think you make a good point that the, the, the actual people Brooks interviews in, in Franklin and Montgomery counties are really nothing more than the pawns of a, uh, of a much larger game. Maybe not nothing more. That's that nothing buttery we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Precisely. But but, but they, they are pawns in a larger game, even if there's something okay. more besides that. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, the rules as they stand right now uh, tend to make it very, very, very difficult, if not entirely impossible, for a third party to come in. Uh, because again, I mean, it is hard enough to play this complex game with two teams. If you get a legitimately viable third team, uh, I mean, it would completely change the character of the game. And, and really, I mean, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, Michael, but I mean, in my own lifetime, the role that third party candidates have tended to play is that whichever third party candidate is strongest uh, tends not to stand a legitimate chance of winning so much as they take the margin off of whichever of the two big teams might have stood a chance. So Ross Perot, by and large, gave the election to Bill Clinton. Right. Uh, you know, Ralph Nader. Nader, by and large, gave the election to George W. Bush. Which just delights people like Dan Carlin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely one of those things. And again, I mean, you, you, you don't want to fault the article too much. It's a, it's a magazine essay. It's not a scholarly tome. Uh, but, I mean, there definitely are generalizations in there that bear some critique. On the other hand, I would say that, you know, I mean, his idea that there are different sort of social imaginations in different parts of the country, I think is definitely something that works. You know, I've spent my whole life in various red states, Indiana and Georgia and Tennessee. Uh, and I mean, you're right that, I mean, one of the things that you don't hear a lot of is people who are conscious of economic class. Now there's still a definite class consciousness, but it has to do with cultural production more than it has to do with economic production. You know, so for instance, I mean, the people that they think of as their enemies are the university professors and the Hollywood executives and so on and so forth who are corrupting the youth of Athens. Right, uh, right. Not necessarily, you know, the people who are giving themselves gigantic tax breaks while the rest of the nation stagnates in income, you know, just to use the, the standard narratives that both parties use. You know, one thing, though, that I don't like about the uh, state colors. Yeah. Is that there? There are such a huge host of differences between the cultures of Indiana, rural Indiana, and rural Georgia that lumping them together like that may do more harm than good. Right, right, and I mean that bears out. I mean, 
really, I mean, the two, in the 2008 election where rural Georgia went overwhelmingly towards McCain and Palin, whereas rural Indiana, because the coal miners unions are still a powerful political force, they didn't go for Obama, but they shifted enough away from John McCain that northern Indiana, which tends to lean more Democratic, pulled Indiana into the blue column. Right. So, I mean, you know, that's something that I, I'll admit, I don't even have the imaginative powers to imagine that happening in Georgia. <laughs> no, I but, mean, I, I don't think a, I don't think a Democrat has won Georgia since Jimmy Carter. No, I don't believe so. And I don't know if he would have won if he hadn't been from Georgia. Right, exactly, exactly. But when so. you can't carry your own state, you know, you're in trouble, like, uh, like Gore. Al Gore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, although his state really was Washington, D.C., as we already discussed. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, he was nominally from Tennessee, but I mean, nobody was fooled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, at any rate, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and ask you a question that everyone knows the answer to already, just to hear you answer it, because uh, I like to do that. So tell me this, Michael, why is this kind of partisanship that Brooks talks about a bad thing for a republic, and what sorts of partisanship, if any, are good for a republic? That's not even slow pitch uh, softball, Nathan. It's just it's just uh, t-ball. Yeah, it's a beach ball. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's bad because it stops stuff from getting done, stuff that needs to get done. Like, I mean, I, I alluded earlier to to the thing about the debt the, the debt ceiling last year and how close we came to the government shutting down. And while I'm sure there are people um, who who think it would have been a good thing for the government to shut down, I'm afraid I can't agree with them. Um, so when when this partisanship really seeps into the to the parties themselves, it just becomes impossible to get anything done unless you have a supermajority, and even then, it doesn't seem to work very well. So obviously, right. that's bad. Now, um, what sort of partisanship would be good for a republic is the sort of partisanship that Brooks seems to think we had in 2001, although I think he's wrong about it. This partisanship <laughs> where we all have common goals and we just disagree about how to get there. Yeah. Um, I I, uh, I think if that were the case, it would be really great, but I don't think that's the case. I think he's mm-hmm. uh, he's starry-eyed, as I said earlier. Right, right. And, I, and I'll admit, I have a more positive view of partisanship than you do, Michael, uh, just because I don't want the government getting a whole lot of things done. Yeah, uh, my, dad, my dad says that, too. And, I mean, the, the example I give is not the typical right-wing example but i mean it's precisely the sorts of things that happen when uh in bush's first term you know when he had uh at least for the last two years of his first term the house and the senate both on his in his camp uh and i mean you know the policies that he enacted i mean there really wasn't any sort of effective resistance to them Uh, And in my mind, because those aren't my politics, they went in a very bad direction in a very at a very rapid pace. Uh, Now, I would imagine that, you know, were the tables turned and, you know, if Obama got himself a big majority in the House and the Senate, uh, although he did that once and it didn't do anything uh, that, you know, it would be those on the right who would say, you know, we need more partisanship and we need someone to stand up to these guys. Uh, You know, my my view on these sorts of things is that when genuine emergencies happen, legislative bodies tend to take things on that need to be taken on 
and that in other in other times when the emergency is manufactured then legislative bodies tend to lock up and not make any radical change and frankly i think that's for the better i don't know our last emergency resulted in a whole bunch of policies i don't care for well i think it was a manufactured emergency i see and i mean that i mean that's the thing i mean and and i know i'm the one person in america other than al franken who thought this was an intelligent thing that john Kerry said (laughs) but in the 2004 campaign and of course he got absolutely obliterated for saying this uh, but he said, you know, when Chicago had a problem with gangsters in the Depression, or during Prohibition, pardon me, uh, you know, the U.S. didn't raise up an army and invade Chicago. Instead, they went in and made it go away by means of law enforcement, and they reduced it to a nuisance. And I think we ought to do the same with these terrorist networks. And no, I think I, that's, that seems wise to me. Yeah, and I mean, I thought that was about the smartest thing anyone had said since mid-2001 about terrorism, but of course, you know, all of the 24-hour news network said, oh, John Kerry thinks terrorists are just a nuisance. <laughs> and, and see, and see that, that may be the real root of the problem, rather than partisanship uh-huh. on the ground level, is the 24-hour news networks. I mean, we haven't done yeah, that episode yeah. yet, but I know it's fashionable to call them the root of all evil, but it's fashionable because it's true. Right. Them and the German university. Right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that, you know, I mean, in that case, uh, you know, the so-called terrorist threat, uh, I mean, really was something like gangsters in Chicago in the 1920s. Unfortunately, we treated it more like it was Mussolini's Italy in the 1930s. And, you know, we raised this massive military response and we invaded countries and we, you know, did all of these sorts of things that, as it turns out, didn't do a whole lot to stop the rise of global terrorism. You know, I mean, what has actually worked is law enforcement because these guys are not an army, they are criminals. But anyway, I'm I'm doing politics now and with Grubbs off of the show, he's probably going to be listening to this episode and gritting his teeth, so. <laughs> Here's you praise John Kerry. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I, which I, that's going to make my, you know, liberal friends mad too because nobody liked John Kerry. I didn't. I didn't vote for him. Uh, I didn't either. I, I voted for Nader, but that's... <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> I I haven't voted for a Democrat or a Republican since 1996, though, so... <laughs> I'm one of those people. <laughs> you are one of those people. Dan Carlin would be proud. Oh, I don't know about that. I think I'm just petulant. <laughs> but at any rate, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do, I do genuinely think that, you know, partisanship is good when we can avoid manufactured crises, uh, because precisely because it keeps an ideology from driving the massive machine that is modern government power. So, I mean, that that's my vaguely curmudgeonly take on it uh well michael you and i have lived most of our lives in the midwest and the south uh the areas that generally get called red america even though neither of us likes that term very much uh and yet for several years for both of us we were in a university town athens uh the places that often get called the blue islands and red oceans and of course you know athens georgia is one of the 
typical university towns, Austin, Texas, Bloomington, Indiana, those sorts of places. Madison. Uh, oh, okay, okay. Madison. Wisconsin. Okay, Wisconsin. Very good, very good. Um, at any rate, uh, how well does this article's analysis hold up when one considers the college town as a phenomenon? I think the college town is probably liberal in terms of the professors, certainly in terms of the graduate students, but the students themselves are certainly not. I mean, the students I taught at UGA were by and large Republicans. They were by and large uh, Republicans or libertarians. The Democrats I taught were certainly in the minority. The overall flavor of the town is probably more blue than the other uh, areas around it. Mm-hmm. But, uh because of the number of academics. I mean, there are very few um, conservative academics, especially the humanities. But uh, I, I don't know. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a weird phenomenon. It's almost like when you, when you drive into Athens, it's almost like you've left Georgia. Yeah. Because it certainly seems to have very little in common with... Uh, Clark County certainly has very little in common with Oconee County, other than location. Right, and other than the presence of uga professors right <laughs> that's a little inside joke folks athens clark county is the poorest region in georgia all of the wealthy professors live in the adjoining oconee county or i shouldn't say all of them a a significant chunk of them did you say clark county is the poorest county in georgia that's what i've read i always heard white county oh okay that's entirely possible Oh, I, I would have a hard time believing it was Clark, having having lived up there in Stevens and been to Franklin and White counties. Uh huh. But anyway, that's uh, neither nobody cares about nobody cares well, about it, our sociological it might be. Here, analysis. Here's, yeah, I mean, here this might have been what I read, and I and it's been a few years since I've read about this, but it might be that Athens Clark County has the highest poverty rate in Georgia. Okay. That might have been what I read. Now that I think about it, so folks, if 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 there are any georgia sociologists out there who can correct us by all means do so anyway yeah life of the college town it's no surprise that college towns are often called the people's republic of blank yeah yeah (laughs) but uh but what i'm saying is that is mostly professors and graduate students undergrads at least at uga i were not overwhelmingly liberal wouldn't you agree yeah, and I mean, from what I've heard from friends who have been at Indiana University, that's also the case there. Uh, I can't really speak to University of Texas because I don't know that many Texans. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that that tends to be the dynamic in those towns is that the folks who live in town, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll just shoot straight about it. I mean, they tend to be low-income people who work for the physical plant and food service for the university. Right. That's true in Bloomington and in Athens. Uh, so, I mean, they tend to be democratic voters. Uh, the professors, because they are academics tend to vote democratic just because that demographic tends to lean that way. Uh, but you're right. The students who tend to come from the suburbs of the big cities, whether that be the suburbs of Indianapolis for Indiana university, whether that be the suburbs of Atlanta for university of Georgia, uh, they do tend to carry that, uh, GOP ethos with them. And because of this narrative of opposition that's been set up, again, I think that narrative predates the red America, blue America image. 
uh, but it certainly plays into it because they carry that with them. Uh, they see at least part of their job while they are in college to be to resist uh, being indoctrinated, whatever that means, uh, by their liberal professors. So, you know, they tend to move back to the suburbs of Indianapolis and Atlanta as re- registered Republicans. Right. And, you know, I mean, that's I <laughs> and again, this is where I need grubs here to yank on my leash. Uh Grubsy, where are you? Uh, but, you know, I mean, that's really where I sort of started to get disgusted with UGA by the time I left there in 2009, is that, you know, I felt like I was just sort of perpetuating this suburban aristocracy, you know, that these kids, you know, come in with this sense of entitlement, you know, I'm going to spend four years here, you know, drinking and occasionally attending class in Athens so that I can return to Marietta go to my upper middle class job, send my kids to private Christian high school. These value voters. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, send them over to Athens to drink for four years so that they can send their kids to private Christian high school and so on and so forth. And I mean, I just being part of that machine just got to wear on me after a while. And honestly, I mean, that's one of the things I like best about where I am now is that a whole lot of our students are first generation college students. And I mean, I actually feel like, and again, this is my, you know, closet lefty sympathies coming out. I feel like I'm actually doing something to change the political culture of America, or at least I have the opportunity to. Until they, until they move to Marietta. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> yeah, and that's, uh, there's a libertarian once who asked Tony Campolo, who of course is always railing against the big corporations, you know. They asked him, okay, you know, what if one of these small startup businesses that one of your graduates, you know, fires up in inner city Philadelphia gets so big that they become as big as Microsoft? And Campolo, who, if nothing else, is is someone who sticks to his guns, he said, well, then I will oppose them just as ferociously. Good for him. <laughs> so anyway, you know, that's that's definitely one of the things that I... Uh, I agree, Michael. I mean, that that rotating demographic of the suburban Republican student body uh, is something that, you know, makes the college town. Well, and I mean, that, and again, I mean, that's why they tend to vote blue, right? Because college students as a group tend not to vote. Is that true? Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, that's one of the things that I mean, uh, with really starting with Bill Clinton and all the way up into Obama's campaign, I mean, they have been struggling to try to get college students to vote. Uh, Obama's been the most successful, but I mean, still, I mean, the voters among the 50 and upset, I mean, just vote far more frequently percentage-wise than people between 18 and 24. I would like to see fewer college students voting. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I say this as someone who generally wants the Democrats to win. So I understand it's a self-defeating uh, thing to say. But, uh, yeah, I uh, I would like to see fewer college students voting. Not more. <laughs> Let's not rock the vote. How about that? Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, rock the vote. I mean, although I'm sure there are people out here who can, stu- who can cite studies at me that show that it was some kind of success. I mean, it still hasn't changed the fact that people – under 30 tend not to vote. Interesting. And, you know, I mean, that's, you know, you ever wonder why, you know, I mean, the 
campaigns, you know, tend to play to the middle-aged and older voters far more than to the young voters, it's because there's no money in playing to the younger voters. And you can get them to wear buttons, you can get them to wave flags, you can get them to do a whole lot of things, but getting them to go to the polls on Tuesday, that's a lot harder to do. It's so fun. I mean, because it takes like, what, half an hour? Yeah, if that. But these are people who won't go to the library, you know. (laughs) Well, then. (laughs) All right. Well, at any rate, Michael, I've been in the driver's seat for most of this episode, so... I'm going to let you have the final word, if you will. Uh, what have I underplayed in this essay or about contemporary politics that our listeners should hear a little bit about? Oh, I don't know. I think we've hit most of the high points. I, I, I will just say that I am looking to the forthcoming up, upcoming election with real fear and trepidation about the uh, partisan bickering and ugliness we're going to see. I, You know, whoever wins, the other side is going to say it's the end of the world and I'm just, I'm just tired of it. So I, I don't vote anymore to be frank. So I, uh, I, I, I just don't see a, I don't see a reason. I, I you know, it, yeah. what it, whatever happens, it just makes society that much uglier. Right. I do vote for, ne- but never for Democrats or Republicans. So you're always disappointed. <laughs> no, I'm a, I no, Cause that gives me four more years to say, well, I didn't vote for this bozo. <laughs> I, could say, I could say that too. And I don't have to go out on, uh, Super Tuesday or whatever, voting Tuesday. Well, yeah, but see, the difference is I can say, well, if you voted for my guy, things would be different. <laughs> if you voted for Nader. <laughs> Which, actually, I didn't vote for Nader in 08. I voted for uh, Joe Schreiner because I found someone even more obscure than Nader. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am the ultimate hipster voter, Michael. I, I know. <laughs> you, you li- uh, of course, if you won, you, you'd say that you liked him before he was cool. Before he was mainstream, yeah, yeah. I- <laughs> But, folks, you need to go to uh, VoteForJoe.com. This is the uh, Nathan Gilmore-endorsed candidate. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, one of the three of us can endorse a candidate. The other two hosts of this show do not endorse any candidate. I just endorse Shriner because, frankly, you know, I don't think my endorsement carries that much weight. (laughs) Grips will probably endorse somebody if you ask him. He might, he might. Uh, But, you know, I mean... As far as this campaign goes, I mean, I, I uh, perhaps I'm, and again, I'm, I'm drifting into fields here where I have no expertise, but that's kind of what this podcast is all about. Uh, but the way it's shaping up to me, Michael, it's looking like a replay of 2004, where you've got a mostly unpopular incumbent versus a distant, stiff New Englander with millions and millions and millions of dollars. Uh, who can't seem to get his own base excited. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in 2004, his name was John Kerry. In 2012, his name is Mitt Romney. Uh, I think, you know, the scripts are frighteningly similar. But, well, uh, Dan, I, I keep bringing back to Dan Carlin because he's one of my favorite political guys. But he, Oh, he, he, he's the best one on the Internet, I think. He had an episode a few months ago about how the... Uh, the uh, electoral cycle makes it makes it so that only unelectable candidates get put up against unpopular incumbents because i mean if yeah you, if and, you, I, if, and i'll if, admit that that was one of those moments where i i was thinking okay he's got his conspiracy theory goggles on i don't think he was talking about a conspiracy theory i think it it was more just 
you know, this is a stupid system that that is about that is about the uh, states bringing attention to themselves, and and it, it has disastrous results if you want to see an incumbent kicked out. Yeah, I don't know about that either. Because I mean, you look at Jimmy Carter, George H. W. Bush. I mean, it's happened twice in not that many years. You look at the other examples, though. Dole. Yeah. Mondale. Well, okay, Mondale was a train wreck. I'll grant that. <laughs> but, I mean, that's. <laughs> I mean, I think anybody could have beat Bush in two thousand four, except for Democrat Bush, John Kerry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, every, I mean, everything that people hate about George Bush was as true of John Kerry. I mean, I voted for Bush in 2004 because I figured then at least we'd get two new candidates in 2008. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, uh, I, I voted for Nader, so I've got nothing to say. Right, <laughs> right. Oh, but at any rate, uh, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up there, Michael, because now we're spinning our wheels and prognosticating presidential elections mercifully uh david grubbs will in fact be joining us again for next week uh michael what will we be talking about we will be doing the uh episode i promised earlier this semester uh terrible movies based on great books cool cool so you can tell it's the end of the semester because we have picked a topic that requires no preparation whatsoever absolutely uh, well, at any rate, thank you, Michael, for the conversation today. We have now done our political episode for the semester, so we've fulfilled that promise. Uh, listeners, if you want to find us on the web, you can find us at christianhumanist.org. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, where, of course, our best listeners and the ones dearest to our heart will leave us five-star reviews and write positive things in the review column. You can also email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. In the meantime, this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael Farmer and the absent David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. I caught you streaking in your Birkenstocks, a scary thought in the two Ks. It's not too late, sits in toothpaste, got enveloped in your sticker shock. I gotta tell ya, it's a barrage, it's a barrage, it's a barrage.